Uh, we're going to read First uh, Peter chapter one verses thirteen to twenty-one. You follow along in your own copy of God's Word there at home. And then we're going to pray together. First Peter chapter one, verse thirteen. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Normally in this time of the service, we would have the offering. And so I ask if you're there at home and you want to give, you can give online or you can mail in a check. Thank you for your continued generosity. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we know that these days are unique and the uniqueness of these days presents for us unique challenges. We are reminded in this text that we are to set our minds on future grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, you remind us to live as if this world is not our home, as if we're exiles here, because this is not our final destination. Lord, in our lives we're called to be holy, to imitate your holiness in the time of our sojourn here. And Lord, we know that that is something we fail at often. Lord, we confess our sin to you. We thank you for the good news of the gospel that our sins are forgiven in Christ. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who enables us to walk in purity and holiness. And we ask for, a, for special help these days to walk in righteousness, holiness, as you've called us to, knowing that this is the way that we glorify you during this time. Lord, use this video that we're producing to bless people, encourage them, and remind them of who we are and what we're doing in this life. We ask that you do that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Join me in singing, Fairest Lord Jesus.
All right, well, good morning. Um, glad you're tuning in. I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, and you'll notice that's not the Gospel of Mark, where we have been studying. And the reason for that is because we're going to be taking a little break from Mark to address uh, something that we think is really important, uh, um, some things, some issues that are really relevant to what's going on right now. Uh, we, um, when, when I've been talking to people 
there's almost in every single conversation I've had a, a, a similar theme. And, and that is the theme of disorientation. People are disoriented right now. Life is different. We're really missing something. There's a legitimate pain that many of us are experiencing and not gathering. Even if your life, even if your job has remained somewhat the same, the fact that we cannot actually gather together physically in a room, we are actually missing something valuable that the Lord actually intends for us to have. And so we're, we're struggling. I mean, there's, there's difficulty in this, and I think all of us are feeling it to varying degrees. I want to let you know that we are, are praying about this. I want you to be praying about this. Uh, incredible amounts of wisdom are needed to really think through all the issues and really to go back to Scripture and, uh, and ask the Lord what He would have us do in this situation. Uh, we're thinking about all the different questions. Could we use our land? Could we use our parking lot? Could we do something with a radio? Can, are there, is there any way that we can do this um, gathering and be compliant with what the government's telling us to do. And yet it seems like every day almost we're getting new information about what might be happening or what is happening. So we're just asking the Lord to really lead us in trying to do our best to follow what God has told us to do in his word. But I do think it's worth talking about. I do think there are, there's a certain mindset that we need to have as we consider all the different challenges that are before us. There's a mindset that it will make or break us, I think, during the, this season, and really any season in our lives where we face trial, where we face difficulty, whenever we're facing a life that is not going according to the plans that we have set up, we need a mindset, a way of thinking, a perspective, and that perspective, we're going to call it this, we're going to call it the pilgrim mindset, that we are pilgrims. That is, we are just passing through. This world is not our home. That this place that we've built houses and church buildings and we go to parks and we walk outside, this place is not our final destination. And there's a certain mindset that that creates a a way of looking at life that really enables us to process all the different challenges we're going through uh, more wisely, more biblically. And so we're going to do a little four-week series. And who knows, by the end of the series, in the next four weeks, we could be actually gathering in person in some way. I don't, I don't, I don't know. But we're going to do the next four weeks. We're calling this series Priorities for a Pilgrim people, because that's what we are. We are a pilgrim people with a pilgrim mindset. And here are the four uh, topics we're going to be discussing. This morning, this world is not our home. That's kind of the overall theme. We're going to talk about that this morning. Next week, we're going to look at this topic, under God and government. And so what does it mean to live as God's people who have been placed under a government in our land? The third week, we're going to talk about church unity. We know that everyone's going to uh, come in and we're going to be excited to be together, and yet we also understand that there's going to be differences of opinions. And so we want to know how to fight for unity. And then when we want to get really practical, we'll go to week number four, 
And we're going to ask the question, well, how do we have fellowship with people that we disagree with? We understand the basis for unity in the gospel, in his word, but still there are going to be people with different conclusions. So how do we live in unity? The Bible actually has a lot to say about that. We're going to look at that from Romans chapter 14 and 15. Much of this series, however, though, we will be drawing from 1 Peter. 1 Peter was written in the 60s A.D. by, of course, the Apostle Peter, writing to churches under certain forms of persecution. The Emperor Nero, as you have probably heard, a cruel anti-Christian emperor, is ruling. The people, the Christians, are in need of encouragement in the face of suffering. And so Peter, who is no stranger to suffering and opposition, he had faced it in his own ministry, read the book of Acts, he writes to these people. It's written, the book of 1 Peter, the letter, is written to a pilgrim people, really. It's written to people who are suffering, who are, in, uh, who are themselves disoriented. It's been said that whenever Christians are uh, an opposed minority, the, the letter of 1 Peter becomes extremely valuable. Even historically, scholars have noted that the popularity of 1 Peter Peter increases in places where Christians are marginalized. In other words, the themes in 1 Peter really uh, are aimed at bolstering up and encouraging the faith of Christians who are living in a world that's not their home, a world that doesn't understand them, a world that sets them off to the side and marginalizes them. I want to show you this. You can look at the first chapter in the very first verse. From the very outset of the letter, this theme is introduced. Peter introduces himself. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he writes to those he's writing to, he says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, mentions all these places, but I want to go back to those two words, to those who are elect exiles. Elect exiles. The word elect, of course, has to do with God's choosing of these people. That God in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, chose a people for himself to be redeemed by the blood of Christ and to be brought into relationship with him. These people all throughout Scripture are called the elect. God's chosen people that he sets on his perfect saving love. But there's another word that's paired up with it. Exiles. Exiles. That that is to say they're not home. That is to say they're, they're scattered. They're pilgrims. They're elect exiles. And some have said that to be elect is to be in exile. In other words, that these two words are always tied together. That when God chooses you to be his son or daughter and he draws you into a relationship with Christ by his sovereign grace, that he is drawing you out of the world, that he is giving you a new identity, 
that he is giving you a new home to look forward to, that this world is no longer your home, that there's a different home, and therefore you become a pilgrim in this world, an exile in this world. Election means exile. It means that we're aliens. In fact, you could go and see this in verse 17. In the chapter, in chapter 1, he says, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He calls their lives a time of exile. You think of your life as a time of exile? A time that you're not home? A time of disorientation? Peter used this metaphor. It was one of his favorite metaphors in this letter to bring it up. He, he brings it up again in chapter 2, verses 11. In 12, he says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. In other words, you have to understand your identity that you are an elect exile, that you're a sojourner, that you're a pilgrim. And if you can't understand that, it's going to make it really difficult to live in a world if you're expecting that world to be your final home, if you're expecting that world to contain all your hopes and dreams, you're going to be let down. You're just passing through. You're in exile. You're a sojourner. This isn't your final destination. So we're going to look at some of the features of the pilgrim mindset this morning. We're going to look at four features of the pilgrim mindset. These features will help you live in this world in a world that is not always what we want it to be. It's the world we're living in right now. Here's the first feature of a pilgrim mindset that we're going to find in 1 Peter. As we kind of overview the book, here's the first feature. It is, it is calibrated expectations. This is what we need to do. We need to calibrate our expectations. If we're going to listen to the message of 1 Peter, we must calibrate our expectations. You must calibrate, adjust your expectations. Uh, sometimes false expectations can be really dangerous for people. Uh, Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. There are sometimes a, a kind of heart sickness that can be introduced to our lives when we have certain expectations. We have certain thoughts of how we think that our lives should go, and then those thoughts are dashed, those hopes are dashed, and we feel a kind of sickness, a kind of depression almost, a disorientation, a sadness. Uh, expectations can be harmful. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where an otherwise pleasant uh, th time is ruined because you had certain expectations. Sometimes uh, my family has a movie night planned, and we're flipping through the, the screen of all the different options of movies that we can watch, and I see one that I used to love when I was a kid. And this has happened to you, mom or dad. You go, oh, this is a great movie. Kids, you're going to love it. And you got to convince them to, to like this movie or to want to watch this movie. So you start hyping it up. You start raising their expectations. You say, this movie is so hilarious. You're going to love it. You're going to laugh so hard. We're going to watch it, and everyone's just going to enjoy this movie. Now, this has been my experience that Dad picked the movie, and I hyped it up big time. And then we began to watch it, and it was not what they expected. They will look at dad and they say, what in the world is this? This isn't funny. <laughs> this isn't what we expected. And it becomes a less pleasant experience because they thought that it was going to be great. 
They might have actually liked it if I hadn't have hyped it up so much. But because they had such high expectations, it made it much more difficult to uh, tolerate a, you know, a average, be average movie. See, sometimes our false expectations can end up making us disappointed. Now, how much more can high expectations for a movie, if that's such a, a little thing, it's not even a big deal, but how much more, if you have certain expectations for your life, how much more can that affect your attitude toward things? Have you thought that God has promised to make your life easy? Have you thought that because you're a Christian, you're never going to face times of disorientation? Maybe you're surprised at all this that's going on, and you're surprised at how hard it's been for you? Are you surprised at how difficult the last few months have been? Maybe we had wrong expectations about life. Maybe we thought we were much more strong than we actually are. Maybe we thought that life was supposed to be so much easier than it actually is. I think sometimes there is a, an incipient prosperity gospel we would never articulate, but it lingers there in our minds that we think that because we know God, we have a relationship with Him, that God is therefore bound and obligated to make our lives go a certain way. We want Him to operate on our timetable. We want life to be relatively easy. We want God to take away our problems. Has God promised those things? He actually hasn't. In fact, look at some of these verses here in 1 Peter. The theme of our alienation, the theme of our exile, comes up again and again. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You hear that? Christ's suffering is an example for us to follow? Calibrate your expectations. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Christ's suffering, He was innocent, He was good, He did nothing wrong, and He suffered horrendous suffering. Peter says, arm yourselves with the same mindset. Calibrate your expectations. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Don't be surprised. When do you get surprised? It's when something happens that you don't expect. Someone jumps out from a closet and scares you half to death. You didn't expect it. That's why you were surprised. Well, why would we be surprised in suffering, it's because we somehow thought that life was not supposed to have suffering. We thought life was supposed to be without suffering. And so Peter writes, beloved, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at fiery trials. Don't be surprised by any of this stuff when it comes upon you to test, though. Test you, listen, as if something strange were happening to you. See, Peter wants us to have a different mindset. This isn't strange. Suffering isn't strange. 
To have people who don't understand you. That's not strange. That is to be expected. We should be in no way surprised at how the government views Christianity. We should be in no way surprised that neighbors don't understand Christianity. We should be in no way surprised at that. Chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. See what he's saying? Satan's on the prowl. He's looking for Christians to devour. See, again, calibrate your expectations. How should we think life should go if we have this adversary who's against us? See, we should understand that God, though sovereign over all, during this season of life on earth, has allowed us to live as exiles, pilgrims. Now, there's a day coming that we'll be home. But during this time, we are not home. And we should have expectations that fit the reality of our pilgrimage. We're exiles. Calibrate your expectations. Here's our second point. As we need to think about our lives here as pilgrims just passing through, we need to do this. We need to think about heaven a lot. We need to be people who think about heaven a lot. And I'm not just saying think about the far side comic where someone's sitting on a cloud and has a harp in their hand and pearly gates. Uh, Not that kind of heaven. Think about the eternity that God has promised us, free from sin, new glorified bodies that do not suffer in the new heavens and new earth, totally and completely restored, with our Savior, totally and completely free We need to think about those things. How often are you thinking about heaven these days? No, really. Uh, How often are you thinking about heaven? How often do you think about your salvation? You see, I think one of the things that needs to be dominating our thoughts these days in particular is the reality of our salvation. We should be rejoicing in our salvation. We should be thrilled about our salvation. You know what? If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, the most amazing thing that, has, that could ever happen to anyone has happened to you. I mean, this is not winning the lottery. This is billions of times better than winning the lottery. To be called by God, to be saved, redeemed, to be given the grace of God, to be united with His Son, to be forgiven of all your sins, to be promised an eternal destiny. This is the greatest blessing that any person could ever experience. And if you're a Christian, that's happened to you. I mean, that puts things in perspective. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes for a second. You've got your pen, and you got it in your hand, and you're going to write a letter to suffering Christians. Peter's pen probably didn't look like this big that I have in my hand. But he, he has a pen. He's going to write a letter to suffering Christians. He introduces himself, and then he goes to write. What do you think he's going to write? Now, if that's you, what are you going to write? You know they're suffering. You know they're fearing for their lives under the persecution of Nero. I mean, you might start writing 
hey, guys, I know it's really hard. I, I know that your suffering is intense. I really want to just tell you to hang in there. It won't, it's not as bad as you think. Uh, look at what Peter does straight out of the gate of this book. He, he, he knows these people are suffering. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see what he does? You see, in suffering, we are tempted to become very inward. I wonder if you, during this season, have thought mostly about your sufferings, your inconveniences, the pain you experience, the fears you have. Now, those things are real. But isn't it instructive that Peter actually doesn't start by addressing those things? He actually starts by saying, hey, suffering Christians, I want to show you something, but it's not here on earth. It's up there. Look up here. You serve a God of extraordinary mercy. You serve a God who has caused you to be born again through Christ to a hope that's alive right now. And not only that, he points you to an inheritance. Riches beyond measure in glory kept in heaven for us that will never perish, that will never be defiled, that will never fade. They're being reserved for us right now. Man, that has to be on our minds these days. We're maybe looking at our bank accounts and we're worried. We're maybe looking at the sickness and we're scared. And Peter says, hey, look up. There's an inheritance up there. You have a living hope that nothing in this life can take away. Nothing in this life can take away that. You are cared for beyond your wildest dreams. You are rich and more rich than you ever could have imagined. This is amazing. I think of Pilgrim's Progress, where they're on their journey to the celestial city. You've got to think of yourself that way. That's what we are. We're on our way to the celestial city. And there are times that we need to put an arm around one another. We need to look off into the distance and we have to point and say, hey, look, that's our home. It's not here. This is filled with distractions. This is filled with snares, temptations, detours. It's filled with a lot of things that really can scare us. This isn't our home. This isn't where we will live forever. This is, this is a journey. This is an exile. This is something we're just passing through. Home's that way, the celestial city. Home is where our inheritance is. See, this is Peter's strategy to help uh, suffering Christians who feel displaced is to remind them they have home, and it's not here. They have a country that's really theirs, and it's not here. You look at verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, he's talking about going through trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory, listen to this, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
He points them to a day that the revelation of Jesus, of, of the that revelation of Jesus Christ, a day that we see Jesus for who he really is, that he has revealed to us in the way that we have never experienced yet in our lives. A, a time we actually get to see him. I think Peter's writing this. He could barely contain himself to write this. You know, if anyone's going to write about the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's going to be Peter. You know why? He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember? He was there when he saw Jesus kind of peel away part of his humanity and shine forth the glory of his divinity. Remember that? He, he, he was the one that was bowed down. He was wondering what to do. Should we, work, should we make a, temple, a tent for you, Jesus? Matthew records that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Peter was there. And all throughout this letter, he writes about that day when everyone gets to see what he saw. The revealing, the revelation of the true nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, so many people missed it when he was on earth. So many people didn't have any idea who he was because he, he walked around like a poor rabbi. But there is coming a day when all will see the true nature of the glory of the Son of God. And we will see that as well. He will come in glory and majesty, revealing the brightness of his splendor. And we will be in awe of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13, chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where you set your hope. Not in this life. Set your hope on that day. It's coming. The day of the revealing of the glory of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 4, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Oh, Peter saw a glimpse of it. But there's a coming day that the fullness of His glorious splendor is revealed and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's where we are to set our hope. Chapter 5, look at chapter 5, verse 1. He's speaking to the elders of the churches. And he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter knew I'm going to partake in this and so are you. And he always is bringing his readers back to this reality. Look at verse 4 of chapter 5. When the chief shepherd appears... He's coming. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Look at verse 10 of chapter 5. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There's a coming day when all your tears are wiped away, when all your pain is removed, that all your fears are squashed, 
all your worries flee. It is the day when Jesus comes and we see Him and we realize that He is a chief shepherd, that He is always and ever, He's been leading us and kindly and gently shepherding us. He's been caring for us and there will be a day where we'll see Him as He is. Think about heaven. Think about the day we're home. Think about the celestial city. Jonathan Edwards used to pray, Oh God, stamp my eyeballs with eternity. This is our hope. We're to set our hope here. Not on the government. Not on politicians. Not on legislation. Not on education. Not on systems. Our hope is fixed on Jesus Christ Our hope is fixed on the revealing of his glory on that day that he comes and he does all that he uses all his power to restore creation to its original design and intent. So what do you do when your soul is cast down? What do you do when you're disoriented and anxious these days? You start thinking about your salvation. You start thinking about heaven. You start thinking about the revealing of the glory of Jesus Christ. Follow the example of G. Campbell Morgan. He said this, To me, the second coming is the perpetual light on the path which makes the present bearable. I never lay my head down on the pillow without thinking that perhaps before the morning breaks, the final morning may have dawned. I never begin my work without thinking that he might interrupt my work and begin his own. This is now his word to all believing souls till I come. We are not looking for death. We are looking for him. He will come. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus. So think about heaven a lot. Here's our third imperative, I think, from this letter that we need to draw out, uh, something that we need to be thinking about, a a mindset, uh, the pilgrim mindset. And here it is. It's be holy. Be holy. This is a message all throughout 1 Peter as well. You can look and find it in chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. Look at this. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See that? He points out in the beginning of verse 14 that we're obedient children. We're we're to be his children. He's our father. There's There's a likeness that we bear to him. And so we're not to be conformed to the things of the world. But verse 15 says, we should be holy. Why? Because God is holy. Our Father is holy, and if we're His children, we also ought to be pursuing holiness with all our hearts. You say, what's holiness? Holiness is is a separation. Holiness is to be separated from the things of the world, the things of sin. It is to not be like the world. It is to be like God. The idea is consecration. It's that we're separated from the normal things, from the world. We're separated for a purpose, and that is for God, for His glory, and for His purposes in the world. That's what it means to be holy. A holiness doesn't mean we, we play around with sin. Holiness doesn't mean we take our sins 
uh, we don't take them very seriously. Holiness means that I am God's. I'm going to act like God's. I'm going to act like God in the sense that I am going to try with all my might by the power of the Spirit to be holy. Not allow sinful thoughts and sinful attitudes and sinful actions. See, because we're God's children and God is holy, we really care about holiness. Christians do. All Christians do. In fact, I would say that if you don't care about holiness, you're not a Christian. Because this is part of the way that God remakes us and transforms us when we are brought to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Remember, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In other words, a mark of someone who's been born again, a true Christian, is this hunger, this desire, this ache that we would be holy like our Father is holy. This doesn't mean we're perfect. In fact, this helps us understand the gospel. Listen, we are sinners before a holy God. No one ever born in this world except Jesus Christ has been born without sin. We are all born in sin. We are sinners by nature, and we are sinners by choice. And the older we get, the more accustomed we get to sinning. It's part of how we think. It's part of how we feel. The curse runs deep. Our fall, the fall that we took in Adam, is worse than we like to think. We're not holy. But what happens when the Lord saves us, we, we understand that if we come to Christ, we place our faith in Him, that He forgives our sin, and that He grants us His perfect holiness objectively to us. And now God, when He sees us, He doesn't see our filth because our filth has been put on the cross and forgiven. Rather, He sees Jesus' righteousness. And so we can be declared to be holy before God. So that means the punishment for our sin is gone, that God will not punish us. However, we also know that the Bible is very clear that though we are declared righteous objectively, like a judge saying that person is righteous, we also know that while we live our lives in this world, we still face the power of indwelling sin in our lives, don't we? Maybe you've experienced the power of indwelling sin. Sometimes we just go, woe is me. Will I ever be able to overcome this sin? We, we feel that. We also know that the God who has saved us has not left us on our own. He has given the Spirit to sanctify us. What do we call the Holy Spirit? We call Him the Holy Spirit. And one of the things He's doing in our lives is making us more like Jesus day by day. Now, one of the priorities we must have as pilgrim people is this, that we must pursue holiness. This is in our home. We can't get caught up in these things. We're not to live for the world. We are to be consecrated to God, set apart as holy. And though we have been justified fully and finally and forever, we now need to walk in a pursuit of actual day-by-day Holiness. Holiness is essential to the walk Jesus has called us to. This is how we please God and show Him how glorious He is. 
to the world. It's by walking in holiness. Do you want to have a platform to talk about the grace of God with your friends and your family and your neighbors? Live a holy life. Holiness doesn't mean holier than thouness. It doesn't mean you're this sanctimonious person that always is looking down on people because you feel so holy. That's, that's false holiness. That's Pharisees' fake holiness. True holiness, it, it contains this joy, this delight, this freedom in knowing the true God who made all things for his glory and for your good. And so as we walk in holiness, Lord, the Lord uses us to create a witness because our lives begin to reflect more and more what Jesus is like. You could be a successful politician without being holy. You could be a successful athlete and never pursue holiness a day in your life. You could be a successful student or an actress or an artist and never even be interested in pursuing holiness, but you cannot be a productive and fruitful Christian without pursuing holiness. So do you pursue holiness? And are you using this time to pursue holiness? It is imperative during this season of our exile that we pursue holy conduct in this world. Look at this. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see what's happening there? What he's saying is, you got to live a life that's holy, abstaining from the passions of the flesh. Even though those passions wage war on you, you got to fight against them. Why? So you can keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is the unbelievers, you can keep your conduct honorable. Why? So that when they watch the way you live, they have nothing to point at that's such a discrediting part of your life. They can't call you an evildoer. It says they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Here's how it happens. The culture begins broad-brushing Christians. Oh, all Christians are bigots. All Christians are hate mongers. All Christians are intolerant, divisive people. And then they meet you. And they see that you're actually loving. That you're generous and charitable and kind. You're a normal person, that you're not acting like you're holier than thou to everyone. You've been humbled by the gospel. And the people see you and they go, oh, well, well, they were saying that you were divisive and unkind and intolerant. But as I talk to you, I see that you're charitable and generous. You're nice. You're humble. What's the point of that? Your, your, your holy life becomes a platform for you to then say why you are the way you are. And you say, it's, it's Jesus. The walk in holiness. How many scandals or moral failures have given the world another excuse to reject Jesus? We don't want our lives to be walking 
excuses for the unbelieving world to continue in their unbelief. We want our lives to be so compelling that when the unbelieving world watches, they go, man, there's something different about those Christians. I want to know what it is. Well, that brings us to our last point. Be prepared to be a witness. Be prepared. Be prepared. If we're going to be pilgrims here, we need to be prepared to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 3. Kind of all the themes that we've been talking about are brought together like threads in a braid. In verses 15, 14 and 15, verse 14 says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Listen to this. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. He just told us not to be afraid to suffer for righteousness' sake. That, that calibrates our expectations, right? And then he tells us, honor in your hearts, Christ is holy. That's telling us to be holy. And then he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope. It's talking about heaven, this hope that we have. For the hope that is in you, to yet do it with gentleness and respect. You see, he's saying that if we have these lives of purity, willing to suffer, willing to live lives where we give up our rights and we say, hey, Lord, I'm entrusting myself to you. And if, if you think that, I, that I'm uh, worth persecuting, that the world persecutes us, then we willingly suffer like Jesus. But then if they ask us, hey, what's going on? We need to be ready to give an account for the reason that we have hope. I don't think he's talking about being able to be a you know, scholar apologist, that you can do all the, 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 the different reasons that the scholars and apologetics people tell us we need. You got Kalam's cosmological argu argument. You have all the reasons that you can prove these things with historical data. You know, those things are really helpful and good, and I'm thankful for people who study those things. I think what he's actually saying here is you, Christian, you need to be ready to tell someone why you are the way you are. You need to be able to tell someone why you have the hope you have. You need to be able to answer the question, why are you different? Maybe this is a question you could, you could have around the table today at lunch. You could ask, what would you say if someone asked you why you have so much hope these days? If someone came up to you and said, why are you so hopeful? Could you have an answer for that? See, I think that's what he's saying. Why do you have hope? Because Christians ought to be living in such a way that we are filled with hope. We're not the ones worrying. We're not the ones anxious. We're the ones saying, hey, this is not my home. I can't put too much stake in what's happening in this world. I'm going to be in glory with Jesus someday. I care about this world and I care about people, but I'm not setting my hope here. And they say, wow, you live differently. What is the deal with your hope? And we say, ah, here's the answer. I have a Savior. He's made promises. I believe them. And I walk in obedience to Him. That's why I'm different. Could you articulate the gospel? Could you tell someone your testimony? Can you explain why you have the hope you do? 
See, look at what 1 Peter chapter 2, go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 9. He's giving these people who he's writing to an identity. He's helping them understand who they are. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Look at this. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why have you been saved, Christian? That you might proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Be prepared to talk about how excellent Jesus is, how glorious he is, how amazing his salvation is, how wonderful his grace is. Can you share the gospel? Now, if you're not a Christian and you're watching this, let me just tell you real quick what this hope is. See, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not that we will figure it all out and fix all the problems. We understand that we cannot do that. And we understand that humanity is broken, that we are sinners, that we have lived in rebellion to a God who made us and loves us, and that our rebellion and sin is deserving of God's righteous punishment. We believe that. Now, here's the thing. We are not brought to despair, even though we understand how broken we are. And the reason we're not brought to despair, because we know there's something else here. There's, there's more to the story. It's not just that we've all sinned against a holy God. It's that this God is a God of mercy, a God of grace. And so this God is interested in a plan of redemption. This is why he sent his son, Jesus Christ to live the life that we could never live, and then to go to the cross and die in the place of sinners. Why? So that we who trust in him can have all our sins paid for. The penalty that we owed God can be paid for by Jesus. He didn't remain dead. He actually, literally, historically, physically rose from the dead. Jesus is alive right now. He conquered sin and death as a promise that all who trust in him will also one day conquer death. So we don't fear death. Jesus conquered it. Now, Jesus being alive right now, he offers freedom from sin to you. He offers hope that one day he will not only remake your heart and not only remake your body, he will remake this whole world. He will establish his kingdom. He will create a new heavens and a new earth. And as we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, he will give you an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that will be reserved for you. Do you want your sins forgiven? You can come to Jesus in faith. He will save you and justify you and adopt you. And you can have the same hope that Christians have had for all these centuries down through the ages. We Christians need to be ready to speak the gospel to people and live differently so our lives are a compelling witness to the gospel. So as pilgrims, what do we do? We calibrate our expectations. We think a lot about heaven and our home there. We pursue holiness with all our hearts. And we're prepared to speak up about the hope that we have. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the hope that you've offered us the hope you offer to us in yourself. We are not our hope. 
Our ideas are not our hope. Our world does not contain our hope. You are our living hope. Or you will save. You will forgive. You will redeem. You will restore creation. All our hope is in you, and we walk as pilgrims here. Help us to have the right expectations. Help us to be pursuing holiness in the right perspective. And Lord, we ask for opportunities to speak your truth as your ambassadors here while we're on earth. Lord, help us to remember this world is not our home. In Jesus' name, amen.